0: Let's just put this in perspective, right? So we spent, what, two years, maybe two and a half years on the Gospel of John. We finished that. We started Ephesians at the beginning of the semester, and we will finish Ephesians in one week. So this is really nice, right? We're going to close the semester. We're going to start something new in the spring. This feels good. We've got just this last bit of Ephesians 5, and then we're going to jump into Ephesians 6 next week, and then we'll be done. Uh, And then you all have finals. I'm sorry. I really am, but that's a good thing. It's bittersweet. And then uh, home for the holidays. Okay, so um, Ephesians 5 is, uh, well, I guess what you've noticed since, the, since we've gotten past Ephesians 3, Ephesians 1 to 3 is all this stuff about beliefs and all these crazy things to be believed. Um, and then we jump into Ephesians 4, and it was striking to me as I started really studying Ephesians um, that Ephesians 4 is much less about the morality and ethical system that you need to follow in light of what you believe and much more about how the beliefs of chapters 1-3 through three should shape the way that you interact with other believers. So it was striking to me to get into that. And incidentally, this, uh, this semester has been one where I've grown to love the community that i found here in this city and at this church. Uh, And it's one that I've become really dependent upon the community in a way that I've experienced a bit before I got here, but not to the degree that I have over the last year. Uh, And so, seeing the way that Ephesians talks about the way the beliefs of the Trinity and the Trinity's work in saving us and the Trinity's work in history of drawing together one body in Christ, from every nation, from every tribe and every tongue, and how that should shape the way that we are patient with each other, that we forgive one another, the way that we talk about each other, the way that we talk to each other, that it really landed really heavily on me uh, this semester. Because one thing that I have noticed is um, that the enemy at work against us very much wants to pull us away from our interaction with the Trinity very much wants to do that by bringing shame, bringing guilt, uh, by making you remember your past and live in your past and live in the guilt and shame of your past, to make you live in the anger of your past, to make you really begin to live in the life that you had before you became a believer, to, to bring that to bear on you. And that truly the enemy is good at doing that, really good at doing that. But the next thing that he is out to do is to isolate you from real, biblical, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting community. He really wants to isolate you because the hands and feet of Jesus, the manifestation of the Trinity, most readily available to us are the people who trust Christ around us. And I never experienced that growing up. I, I did not experience The closest thing I experienced to a brotherhood growing up was me and seven other guys who uh, had a lot of good times together. We smoked together. We drank together. Um, we had fun together. We did everything together. And it was a good time. And we were like brothers. And it wasn't until I got to the city and it wasn't until I began to follow Jesus with absolutely everything that I began to experience the life that the community offers, like the real life that the community offers. And then I immediately began to experience uh, the way that the enemy wants to divide me and pull me away from the people closest to me. Uh, To the degree that I, to the degree that I called those friends that I had growing up brothers, but I, Joe is one of, Joe is not one of the guys that I grew up with, but after I became a believer and began to have interactions with Joe and another guy that has been around here before named Roman who's in Dallas now but we still interact a lot and the more I've interaction over this time like I was prepared to name my firstborn child after Joe and this guy Roman um, except for that Roman's name is Roman Joseph and then he was gonna name his son Roman Joseph so I was like oh that's a little odd uh, and so we didn't do it but to the degree that I've never felt family and life among other people like that in my life Um, And that one thing I consistently hear as people leave Grace and leave Crosspoint is that uh, they get away uh, and they miss what is here. Uh, And I don't know why it's here. I don't know why the Lord has blessed us with it. I believe he has. I don't believe it's perfect by any means, but I believe it is something beautiful and good, and I enjoy and I find life in it. Uh, I find real life in my relationship with you guys. Um, And so I I just want to say that as we begin to talk about this, Uh, that I love you guys. And the way that y'all have um, dealt with things over the last few weeks and over the last few months and over the last few years uh, really makes me love God more. It really makes me love the Holy Spirit more. Uh, It it makes me love being here more and more. Uh, And so I just want to say I commend you on that. It's beautiful. It's good. Um, And that as we begin to talk tonight, I want that uh, to shape what we're thinking about as we move into a little more about community. And so We get into Ephesians 5, and we get into this really interesting part of Ephesians 5 that I know you all love, especially the women. Um, Ephesians 5, uh, I I believe the part that is particularly good is in verse 22, uh, wives submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ, right? So that's the part that we really uh, are scheduled to talk about it, and we will talk about it, but from a grammatical standpoint, from a grammatical standpoint. If you want to look at the text, you you can. I think it'd actually be helpful if you did. Ephesians 5.22, if you want to look at that real quick. That if you read Ephesians 5.22 where it says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, that word submit is not in the text. It's not in the text at all. Really in Greek, what it says is, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. And so when there's not a verb in the Greek text, text, what it means is, uh, Greek is is extremely uh, precise and complicated and weird, um, but it's precise and so it's helpful. When there's no verb in the text, what it means is you need to take the verb from the previous sentence. So they'll leave a verb out in one sentence and just say, hey, we'll just use the one from the last sentence. Just carry that on. Uh, And so it's really weird, but it does help you know when things are grammatically linked together. Uh, And Greek is also really good at using participles and these other verbs, which I'll show you in a minute, uh, to link things together so that you know when an idea is supposed to go together. And so when we read 522, you probably in your Bible have a heading there that says wives and husbands, right? That heading should not be there. That heading should not be there. Uh, Because there's no period at the end of the sentence before that. There's no period at the end of the sentence that says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It literally just flows right in there. When you read in the original language, there's no sentence, there's no marker, it just flows right into it. And then the sentence before that flows into that, into that, into that. And so this idea really begins in 5.15. The idea that we're going to look at in 5.22 and then beyond, children obey your parents and bond servants submit to your master's. It's really weird text really heavy text here really misused text historically they all this idea really starts in 515 so we need to start there unpack and we'll move along right so let's do that 515 look carefully then how you walk not as unwise but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Let's stop there. We can unpack that for a second. So what's going to happen is a sentence is going to be said, and then things that relate to that statement are going to be said. And then at the end, the last part of the sentence, the last part of the unpacking, he's going to attach four more things to it. And then when he gets done with those four things, then the last one, he's going to attach four more things to it, right? So it's really odd, but I'll show you how that plays out, right? So look carefully then as you walk, look carefully then how you walk. And he's going to have three, we'll call them not buts, three not buts, okay? When I say not buts, what I mean is, be careful then how, how do you sign that? Not buts? Not but. Yeah, not but, Okay. Oh, let's stop there. I learned last week that my name in sign is the same as the one for toilet. (laughs) Yeah, right? It's awesome. Thank you. And apparently you get to make up names for people that sort of, right? That's sort of the way it works. Great. Thanks for that. Okay. All right. Sorry. So when I say that, look carefully then how you walk. What he's going to show you is that grammatically, he's going to say, "Look, car- be careful then how you walk. Pay attention to the way that you live is really the idea in the statement. And he's going to give you three things, not this way, but this way. He does it three times. Not this way, but this way. That's what I mean by not but. Not this way, but this way. And he's going to say, be careful how you walk. Not this way, but this way. Not this way, but this way. And not this way, but this way. So let's unpack the three, right? I'm so sorry, Madeline. <laughs> I've never been this close to you to realize how difficult this probably is for you. Okay, sorry. Okay, look careful then how you walk. Pay attention to the way that you live. So even before we jump into that, I want to say this. It is striking the way that Paul calls Christians to live. It's striking. It's different. It's crazy. It's absurd. And it's because we believe absurd things. And I want to be really clear in that. I think for the last like 25 years, maybe 30 years, uh, we as Christians have been really trying to convince people that don't believe in Christianity how reasonable and not absurd Christianity is. Let me tell you, Christianity is absurd, okay? We believe a guy rose from the dead. We believe we're going to live forever with him, right? We believe that Moses, by God, parted an ocean and people walked through that not an ocean, it's a sea, right? Made it sound crazier. We believe absurd things. We believe in miracles. We believe in a spiritual realm with spiritual forces, demons, and angels. That's not reasonable, okay? It's not normal. It's absurd. And the absurdity of our beliefs lead into the absurdity of the way we ought to live. And you see that most striking in the way that we interact with each other. It should be most striking in the way that we interact with each other. And that's the way that Paul is calling us as Christians to live. In a striking way with each other. In a striking way with each other. And so as we read this, I really want that to help shape these not buts, right? So look careful. That's what it says. Look careful. Pay attention to the way that you live. In light of all these crazy things that you believe. In light of how crazy they are. Right. In light of them, look and pay attention how you live. The first one, not as unwise, but as wise. What could that mean? That could mean a thousand things. But he tells us one way, not as, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And so he's saying the first thing that we need to think about in wisdom is the fact that that time is limited, and you have a very small amount of it. A very small amount of it. Have you noticed that as you've gotten older, it feels like time is, like a year lasts, like way shorter than it did when you were, do you remember like when, when you were in kindergarten, and it seemed like a year was like the longest amount of time you could imagine? It was absurdly long, right? And now doesn't it feel like the semester has just flown by, right? And you felt that, and you know it's going to get worse and worse and worse, like I'm 30 now. And so it just feels like it's just like gone. I feel like I just had my son and I'm looking at him today and he's walking around and I'm like, "When did you learn to walk?" <laughs> like, "What are you doing? When did you?" Right? It's so weird. It's so odd. It's so crazy that it's just gone though. It's gone. Those experiences are gone. I can't have them again again, make them again. Uh, How many of you seen Interstellar, that movie? Yeah, yeah, a few of you. How many of you want to see it? Ugh, sorry, I'm going to ruin it for you right now. No, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but there's a very powerful part of it that you're just going to get ruined, and I'm sorry. I thought about whether I should do this or not. I thought about the ethics of it. I'm sorry. This is not ethical. This is not, but the way this movie is is the earth is dying. The earth is dying. It can't support... Uh, food. You'll find that out in the very beginning. (laughs) It can't support food at all. And so, they've seen this wormhole open up near Saturn. A wormhole is just a place in space-time where it's collapsed and you can travel through space in a short amount of time. It's, you know, obvious. Theoretical astrophysics, all that. But this wormhole has opened up to this other part of the galaxy. I'm sorry, this other part of the universe where they might be able to go to these planets that are light years away, right? And so this guy, you see in the beginning of the movie, they really set it up where he's really close with his family and his daughter, really dependent. His daughter's really dependent. His family's really dependent upon him. But he's got this wanderlust. He wants to like see uh, space. Um, And so he sort of gets recruited to take this ship through the wormhole and then go visit these other planets, these three other planets where they have sent uh, a person to each one to see if it's habitable for humans. Really great movie. Uh, And so uh, Matthew McConaughey is the guy. He goes through the wormhole. He goes, I believe it's to the first planet that he goes to. But what they tell him right before he goes down is, if you're not familiar with the theory of relativity, the theory of relativity says that time is relative and that if you were on a planet, that was the size of the sun, that time would actually move slower. It's not that it would feel like it would move slower, that gravity and mass actually affects time. It's really quite fascinating, but it, this is pretty much accepted science. That the si- like if the earth was actually 100,000 times bigger than it is, that time itself would move slower. So what happens is as he approaches this planet that is massively larger than earth that may be habitable, as he approaches this planet, what he finds out is I believe every seven minutes on that planet is, no, every, au- every hour on that planet is seven years, is that right? Every hour on that planet is seven years back home, right? And, and this, is, this isn't just like a story made this up, this is, I mean, this is the theory of relativity, this is the way it works. But you see right before he leaves, him making this promise to his daughter, right, like, I'm going to be back. I'm going to be back. I'm going to be back. And she won't have it and she won't listen to him. She won't have anything to do with him. And he has to leave because he has to get there. No reconciliation. His daughter's like, yeah. I'm sorry I'm ruining this for you. I know this is not ethical, but we have to do it. We have to do it. He gets to this planet. He gets to this planet, right? And it's not anything like they expected. They can't stay there their ship gets hit by this giant wave. They're there longer than they expect, but not that much longer. Yes, close, close your ears. I'm sorry. <laughs> longer than they expect. He gets, uh, one guy dies. I'm sorry. They get back on the ship. <laughs> and they, and, and they, they leave the planet and they get back to the orbiter where, where time is going at a normal speed. And it's been how many years? 23 years on their home planet, right? No, I wept. Like, I didn't cry a little tear. I wept. I wept at this point. I made noises in the theater, like crying. Because he gets back, and it's like, they can't communicate to Earth, but Earth can communicate to them. And his son has been sending updates on his life for like the last, yeah, it's like, I'm about to cry right now for the last like 20 something years and he comes on the screen and he's like 20 years older or 10 he's 10 years older at the time he's gotten married and then and then it goes off and then the clip comes up and he's just way older and his son like his baby son that his son's son gets passed over to him and he's like we had this child and I'm like God, no. Uh, You've missed 23 years. And it's just flown by. And then the next one, like they can only shoot these seven minute clips or something like that. And the next one, that baby has died and he's had another one. And then he comes on and he says, there's been no response for 20 years. They tell me I need to let you go that you probably can't hear me anyway. Right. And the whole time I'm just like, Never in my life have I been so overcome with how quickly time just slips away. That I wept. I wept. Because time is just going by. It's just going by. That I used to look at Facebook while my son crawled on the ground. It's terrible. Like, it's terrible. Facebook isn't bad, but what's it doing? It's robbing me of this relationship that I have, this time that is just gone. It's crazy. And so for the first time, I, I, th- that's the reason I love the movie. There's other things that are great about it. But that part of the movie, I've never been so raw. I was distraught. I was like torn to pieces. Like I went like this. When the baby came on, I was like, oh, like, like a... I was I saying like my mother. I was like, "Oh, it was." T- <laughs> but that's that's what I think. For a being like God, who sees time so differently than we do, and how we waste it, how we just waste it, and that the days are evil right? The days are evil. What could that mean? It could mean so many things. But I think one of the things that it means is that we're caught up in this war. And like he's been unpacking for the last few verses, we've been caught up in this war between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And the enemy is very, very good at making us so busy that we miss life. So busy that we miss life. That's what we do in the United States. We're so busy doing and doing and doing that we miss life. We miss it all. Are so consumed, feeding some appetite that we have, that we miss what the Lord has called us to do. We miss it all, and we trade it all for nothing. And so he's saying very simply, very quickly be careful how you live, be careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil and your life will be snatched away from you before you know it. It'll be gone. What does the Lord put in your life to do? Who are the people he's gathered around you to pour into? Who are the relationships that will be gone when you graduate, and you'll try your best to keep them together, but the blessing you were supposed to give in their life, the redemption, the reconciliation you were supposed to have brought in that person's life, the conversations that should have been had and were never had because you were playing a video game, like, what's going on, right? What's going on? So, the second, not but. Therefore, do not be foolish. So, not foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What could he mean? He could mean so many things. I think the first thing we think when he said understand what the will of the Lord is, we think what he probably means is that God has a specific will for your life, specific things he wants you to do. I think that's absolutely true, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about in the text. I think what you're going to see if you, if you look back on Ephesians, the way that he's using God's will and the Lord's will, he's using it from a more historical perspective. He's saying, understand what God has been doing in history. Understand. Don't be a fool. Understand what God has been doing in history and what he said what we talked about this morning is that he has been working since the beginning of time to gather all nations back to himself to reconcile humans back to him giving them life so they can spread life historically that's what he's been doing and so he's saying don't be foolish and get caught up in things that have nothing to do with that that have nothing to do at all with that I think we really want to know what the Lord's will for our life is, but I think we want it not so that we can be obedient to the Lord, but so that we can find comfort in knowing what the future is. It is a comfortable thing to know what the future is because then we don't have to live in a place of trust and faith in the God of heaven to provide and lead in the moment. God wants to provide and lead in the moment as you trust him and you walk the will that he has laid out that is in accordance with the will that he's been playing out in history. Know what the will of the Lord is. Know what he's up to. Know that he wants to reconcile all men to himself and he wants to gather all nations together and that he's giving things to you because he loves you and wants to be good to you. But it's not about you. He wants, to use, he wants to use the things that he's given you to bless you. But then as you see that he desires to bless you and be good to you, that you would then extend that to other people, that you would show life to other people, that you would be good to other people, that you would reconcile quickly with your brothers and sisters, that you would do that quickly. Because you understand what's really going on. That this is not about you getting a degree and making a wad of cash so that you can retire and get a nice little boat and, and pull away from the people that He's put you around. Why would you do that? There's no good reason. Take vacations, please. Dear God, take vacations. But your life doesn't need to be a vacation. Your life doesn't need to be a vacation. And don't be looking for the day when you've amassed, you know, a million dollars in a nest egg so that you can live without having to work for the last 15 years of your life and you're just vacationing. The best years of your life to pour into people your age. And they're gone, they're gone. So don't be foolish. Know what the will of the Lord is. Know what the will of the Lord is. to so gather the nations to himself. He's been doing it forever. He's going to continue that and he will do it. And we can play this huge role in that or we can be sidelined in it. All right? So don't get amped up on what your future is going to be. He is good and faithful and will provide and will lead. Trust him. He'll do it. But you know what he's up to. You know what he's up to. The mystery of the gospel is not that big of a mystery anymore. Right? And then the third, not but. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So my question, just throw it out. And since we're here, y'all can actually answer. We don't get to do that very often. Why? Uh, We can do theoretically, so you don't get attention called to you. Why do people get drunk? And I'm not asking why people drink. I think there's a different reason for that most of the time. What's that? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so yeah, so... People get drunk, let's say theoretically, people get drunk to put some pain aside, to put something that's bothersome aside. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another reason people get drunk. Okay, ooh, okay, so they, they're they not totally comfortable with their own personality. And so here comes drunkenness, which puts on a different personality. Okay, yeah, yeah, I like that one. Michael Bailey, come on now. Okay, relaxing. Okay, all right. All right? What's it? think? Maybe even think r- real life. If you've had parents that knock them back. What's that? Straight, like addicted. Okay. You have to live that way. You need it to go on. Yeah. Okay, to fit in? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, because people is going on around you. To disassociate? Oh, unpack that. Loomis, I don't know what that means. Okay, okay, to step away completely from reality. Yeah, yeah, because reality is either empty or boring or painful or something, okay. Yeah, I, okay, I, I think all of those, there's so many reasons for it. I can tell you the reason why I, uh, I don't get drunk now, but why I used to get drunk before I was a believer very often is because I have this insatiable appetite. I have this insatiable appetite for something more. I'm unsatisfied. I'm not content. So let's drink more beer. Let's do more cocaine. Let's smoke more weed. Oh, we just smoked? Let's smoke more weed again. Because I have this insatiable appetite for food still. Right? But I have this thing in me that's not content that needs, it needs to be satisfied. Something more, something better, something new, something exciting something 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 and so in me it was this insatiable appetite for life maybe I don't have any idea what it is precisely but all I know is there's something in me that still wants more and more and more and it's hard for me to be content it's hard it's really hard but getting drunk put that aside for a while because then I could not be myself and act crazy I could get over the girl that had hurt me so many all those played in at different times So it's odd that he says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit or be filled with the Spirit. And so grammatically there, there's this argument if that says be filled by the Spirit, like the Spirit is filling you, or if it's be filled with the Spirit, as if the Spirit itself, himself, is what's filling you. Um, I think both of them are uh, theologically accurate. They can be either one of those. But I do think grammatically from the text, what he's saying is that the Spirit might fill you. And so the question is, what would he be filling you with? And so what you're going to see if we go back to Ephesians, which I'm going to read off real quick, is that there's three or four things that Paul is constantly saying that believers should be filled with. And I'm just going to read a couple of them. Um, In 123, it says that you might be filled with the fullness, the same word, the fullness of Christ. And then in 3.19, he says that you would be filled with the fullness of God. And it's the Trinitarian God. You'd be filled with the fullness of Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father. And then he goes on again and says in 4.13, that you might be filled to the fullness of Christ to mature manhood. So it's kind of cool and kind of beautiful that when he says that you might be filled to the fullness, he's Trinitarily speaking about God himself. He's about saying your relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit would actually fill you with life and vitality as you, the vine, are connected to the branch and are finding life in the branch as He sustains you and makes you fruitful. So that you might be filled to the fullness of Christ. In 419, what he's saying is that so you might mature together as one body, what it says, is you might mature together as one body into the image of Jesus so that you might do the works that Jesus did. So you might live the life that Jesus lived. That you'd be filled to the fullness of Christ. That you'd be filled with the life and the guidance and the leading of the Father through the Holy Spirit. That you might be filled with the forgiveness Of Jesus and the power of Jesus to stand against the enemy who's coming against you via the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit might fill you to the fullness with everything that you need. And so the insatiable appetite that I have for alcohol, food, attention, glory might be filled to the fullness by the Spirit of God with the will of God, the life of God, the beauty of God, the worship of God, the majesty of God that I might be filled to the fullness with that sort of life. I may be filled to the fullness with that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying don't get drunk with wine because wine, I, drunkenness is for the putting away of pain in a way that is not in line with the way that Christ wants you to deal with pain. It's about becoming a different person but not in the way that Christ wants to make you into his image. I think he is making us all into a new person, but it's according to the image of Christ, according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But, whoa, well, we can drink wine and become another person. All the reasons that you stated are ways of doing things that God actually does want to do. Let's say all of them, most of them. He does want you to deal with the pain in your life by the blood of Jesus and the power of his Son. He does. He does want you to become a new person. The image of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. He wants all those things. Yeah, and so we can make wine this easy substitute instead of being filled with the Spirit. And so here's this thing I was talking about. He does that one sentence, be careful how you live, the three not buts. When he gets to the third not but, he's gonna use what we call participles. And this will go quick. You'll understand a participle. A participle is a way of saying a verb that's attached to the verb above it. Okay, so what we don't use participles in English. What we would say is... Um, I brushed my teeth, I got out of bed, I got dressed, I had breakfast, got ready for work. What Greek would say is they would use participles. Having gotten up, having gotten dressed, having brushed my teeth, and having, uh, and, and having eaten breakfast, I got ready for work. So the four modify the one. Does that make sense? The four modify the one. And you can tell because the ESV uses the ING ending when it's a participle because they're trying to preserve the Greek, way, the Greek flow of the text. And so you'll see this. So he says, he says this, be filled with the Spirit. That's the active statement. And he's going to give four participles that modify what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. So that as you are not getting drunk with wine, but you're allowing the Spirit to fill you with the fullness of life in Christ, with the fullness of the will and the love of the Father, and the fullness of the forgiveness and power of Jesus... As he is filling you, it's going to look a certain way. And these participles modify it. These are the I-N-G endings that you're going to see right here. Look. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's the first one. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Did I say that's the second? That's the first one. That's the second one. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the third one. The fourth one. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the four ways that it looks like to be filled by the Spirit with the fullness of Christ is going to result in a few things. Let's look at the first one real fast. Addressing or speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I'll, I'll be honest, that's weird. That's weird, right? What if you rolled up to me? What if Joe rolled up to me and he's like, come now, fount of every blessing, right? Right? <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about, man? What are you saying to me, right? So, what's going on here is, what's going on here is, uh, you have, you're in a society where uh, not everybody reads, most people don't read. So, it, what you're going to see is that Paul and the church would come up with little phrases, little sayings, little hymns that they would say all the time to convey belief, to convey truth to one another. So they had little hymns that they would sing all the signs because locked in the hymn, and you know this, music is way more easy, way more easy? That's right, isn't it? Okay, way more easy. Music is way more easy to memorize and feel and understand than uh, stated words are, right? You can memorize a song in like three days, but if if I'm like, hey, memorize Ephesians 5, probably the same amount of words, that would never happen. It would never happen. You could spend like three years on it. And you'd probably never really get all of it. Some of you. There's like four of you that would do it in a week. And I hate you. <laughs> right? But this is the way they package truth. This is just the way they package truth. In psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs. These short, memorable phrases, songs that would wrap truth in a package that they could be received. And so what he's saying there is, speak to each other according to the truth of God presented in the word that has been testified over the course of the Old Testament and now what's becoming the New Testament. Speak to each other the truth. Build each other up in love, like that sort of thing. And, and I'll be honest with you, I don't think we're super good at that. I think we live in a pretty sarcastic culture. I think we live in a culture that cuts down pretty quickly for the sake of fun. I don't think we live in a culture where we're really comfortable being completely, genuinely kind verbally to another person, to where you, like, grab someone, and you lock eyes with them, and you say, I do appreciate you, and I do love you, and you're doing a great job. Like, my first year here, I had uh, a guy that I had just met who had just been hanging around Crosspoint. He later became an intern. Um, and he came to me, and he was just like, man, I think, and he had just gotten here, and he would just seen the way that I acted with interns, and he was like, man, you never tell the interns that they're doing a good job, and you joke with them about things that are kind of cutting most of the time, and I was like, you're a jerk, but you're right. (laughs) Like, everything in me wanted to say, bro, you don't even know me that well, (laughs) but I was like, Good Lord, you're right. You're right. And so it takes a high degree of intentionality to just be honest. And that when someone comes to you with an issue or a problem or a frustration or a grievance, I think what we want to do is either listen and not say anything because you want them to stop talking pretty quickly, or you really do just put them off. Instead of listening, and address what's going on with the comfort and the beauty of the Gospel of Jesus with truth. And not just putting it off. You know, and am just sidelining it. And so he's saying these are participles, so they're not commands. These are not commands. These are him saying this is what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit. This is what it'll look like. That you will address each other and psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs, and that you will begin to sing songs in your heart towards the Lord. Right? And that's weird for us too. Sometimes we're that way, but I don't think most of the time. Right? Making melody in your heart towards the Lord. And giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this is where he's going to drop into commands. Wait, I don't have my clock back there. We? Oh, we've got to move along through this. Luckily, we'll move through the wives submit to your husbands part super fast. submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we had the four participles, and then now what he does, so he did the one sentence, then the three not buts that are sort of blossoming out of that one sentence, be careful how you live, and then he gets to the third not but, and he has these four participles that modify the third not but. so that's all wrapped up into be careful how you live, and then at the bottom of the fourth participle, he says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then that's the word, submitting, that is supplied to verse uh, 22, wives to your own husbands wives submitting to your own husband. So he grabs the submitting participle, puts it in that sentence, and then the next three places of submission are in line with that, right? So he's saying this is part of you not getting drunk and being filled with the Spirit. That if you want the Holy Spirit to be present in your home, it's going to look like this. It's going to look like a wife who, out of reverence for Christ and not out of being less than her husband and not being equal with her husband. It's not because she is a lesser being or a lesser human. It's because Christ, who was equal with God the Father, submitted himself to God the Father and went to a cross. And so it says, take up the same mind that Christ had, which was, I'm not going to consider equality with God something to be grasped. And he submitted himself to the form of a servant and to death. And so what he's saying is if you want the Holy Spirit in your home, if you want to be filled with the fullness of Christ, it's going to take a woman who will gladly submit to her husband out of reverence for Christ, not out of inequality. You have to get that. You have to get that. In Genesis 126, we read it this morning, it says, He created them in the image of God, male and female He created them. From day one, from the first chapter of the Bible, it's saying men and women live on this equal plane, both made in the image of God. Both made in the image of God. And that man has a role and woman has a role together. And that if you want the Spirit to be present in your home, it will look like first a wife submitting to her husband. And then what you're going to see, way more importantly, is it's going to look like a man who is worthy to have a wife submit to him out of reverence for Christ which is not often the case. It is not often the case. So look at this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Look how this talk of the wife and the husband is interwoven with the gospel. It's interwoven with it. It's like they're almost inseparable. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's absurd. That's absurd. In first century, in late antiquity, which is what we call the first century, This is the most socially progressive view of husband and wife that has ever been seen. It's socially progressive. We look now and we're like, good Lord, that's the most socially conservative thing I've ever seen in my life. We look at that and we're offended by that. Our sensibilities are offended by that. You feminists are offended by that, right? Your sensibilities are all stirred up about it. In the first century when this is written, their sensibilities were stirred up about it too. Because for the first time, a wife wasn't a piece of property. It was something that the man, it was a being that the man is now committing to die for. To give up everything that he wants for. To cultivate life in. And to give to and to be seen as an equal. It's the most socially progressive view of marriage up until this point. And then we look at that and we're like, that is the most backwards thing I've ever seen. What you're going to see is the way that Paul would have you live is typically, typically not going to be socially acceptable. It's going to rub up against your social sensibilities. It's going to rub up against them for whatever reason. Whatever place you are in culture and history, it's going to slide right up against you and require something of you. Because what we believe is absurd. What we believe is absurd. And so therefore, the way we act is absurd. So back then, wives submitting to your husbands like, duh. But husbands love your wives? To command loving a wife? No. At this time in Judaism, you could give your wife a certificate of of divorce if you didn't like the way that she cooked. If you didn't like the way that she cooked, you could divorce her as a man. She would be on the streets and probably not able to marry again. Boom. And so what this is saying is, men, treat your wife in the way that Jesus treated the church. Who's the church? It's the people that Jesus died for. Give yourself to her. And I know most of you are not married. But some of you probably will be. And the way that you begin to deal with and think about this now is wildly important. and the two shall become one flesh. Oneness in equality, wives submitting to husbands and husbands dying for wives. That's an impossibly difficult thing to do. Let me break it to you. It's an impossibly difficult thing to do. You do it by the grace of God and with the gospel as the center of it. That I'm going to fail to die to my wife or die to myself for my wife every other day. And she's going to fail to submit to me every other day. And so this is not ammo for me to go home and be like, woman. <laughs> right? That's how it's been used though. And it's not ammo for her to come back to me and say, I don't know what does she say to me. I spend money like an idiot. You spend money on yourself too much. You're not thinking about our future. You're not thinking about our kids' future. Right? To die. To die. That's what he's calling you to do. And we need to be ready for that. We need to be thinking about that. we need to be doing that before we get there. Before we get there. I need to be dying to myself out of reverence for Christ before I ever get to marriage. You need to be submitting to the people around you, all the people around you, out of reverence for Christ. Because that's what the command really is. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So wives doing it to your husbands is really not that big of a deal because you're supposed to be doing it to everybody anyway. Within this body, we are supposed to live absurdly, that I would make limitations on my own life for the sake of you, that I would not do things and live a certain way for the sake of you. I would limit my freedoms for your sake. Submit to one another. out of reverence for Christ, because that's what Christ did. we we got to blaze through this. Children obey your parents. The, the big thing here is that in late antiquity, uh, children were not really considered humans sort of, uh, one of the things that they would do is they would take a child um, and uh, they would lay it before the, the, the head of the household, the father of the household. Usually, maybe, sometimes not the father, but the, what do they say in O oh, Brother Arthur, the paterfamilias, right? They would lay it in front of the father of the house and he could look at it and decide if it should live or die. Uh, and if it wasn't what he wanted, sometimes if it was an unwanted girl, the baby would be exposed. Exposed meaning taken to a trash heap and left. Right, so that's how children were viewed. It's awesome, it's great. So when he says this, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Yeah, that's normal. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And then it says this, the most socially progressive view of children we have. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Typically, the view of childhood is to beat the crap out of them, do what you want with them, and make them do what they need to do. This is saying, don't exacerbate your children. Discipline them and train them and raise them in the Lord so that they understand what grace and the gospel is. They understand what mercy is because of the way that you treat them. Socially progressive. Right? And this last one, it's, an, it's a bomb. It's a freaking time bomb, okay? I'll just read it. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he was both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. This was used to bolster slavery uh, in, what would you say, Antebellum South? This was used to say slavery is a good thing. It was a misuse of this text. Uh, What it's saying here, and one thing we need to make clear, I'm going to do this very fast. We can talk about this later if this is something that interests you. This is something that really needs to be dealt with It needs to be dealt with well. Paul is an oppressed people group. Uh, Paul himself is a Christian which is an oppressed people group within society. We look at the Bible and we're like, wow, this is the most, one of the most powerful books in all of history. When this was written, this was written from one person who was meaningless in a society to another group of people who were also meaningless in a society. So we want to look at the text and say, why didn't Paul say slavery shouldn't happen and bond servants shouldn't happen? Why didn't Paul say that? And the fact of the matter is, is Paul is writing to one oppressed people group, telling them how to operate in a way that honors Christ to another oppressed people group. He is not writing as the oppressors. We in, in, in uh, modern America, from a global perspective, are the oppressors. We are not an oppressed people group, okay? In, in the, the view of the world, we are the rich. We are the haves, not the have-nots. And so we look at this as this very influential book, but when it was written, it wasn't influential at all. It was one guy writing to some other people saying, hey, how do you honor Christ in this situation? His goal with any of this New Testament text is not to say how society should form itself in honoring the Lord. It's saying, how should you operate in a backward society in a way that still honors the Lord? You see what I mean? So everything in me, when I used to read this, I'm like, why didn't, why is he like Martin Luther King Jr.? Like, why isn't he like, Speaking out against slavery, right? Why is he not doing that? He has no voice. He has zero voice. He has no voice within the society. He's a meaningless person writing to other meaningless people. It's only later on in history that this actually becomes the most influential book in history, incidentally. And then the other thing, in the society, this isn't quite what slavery we had. This is still worse than uh, the job you work at. Somewhere in between the job you have, the worst job you can imagine, and slavery as we know it in the United States. This is bond servants. A lot of these bond servants were people that actually went to this person and said, I want to be your servant because I know that you'll take care of me and you'll provide my needs and I'm in a place where I have no one to provide for my needs. So it's not people were kidnapped and then forced into slavery. It's bondservant. And then every seven years, you have the option of buying yourself out. And it's a a societal norm that Paul is not interested in dismantling because it's so much ingrained in the society. What does he want? He wants people to operate in a way that honors the Lord in any way that society is going to function and act. And how does he do that one? Submit to each other. And it's socially progressive because he's telling the master, stop threatening them. Treat them as a brother in Christ. There's no partiality with God, right? So that we back all this thing up. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That the gospel should so shape and inform the way that we approach other people that I am eager to submit to you and I'm not eager to take up my rights and say I can do what I want. Wives to husbands, children to parents, bondservants to masters. Yeah. We believe crazy things. We'll tie it up. We believe crazy things. I think the community that we have at this church is something that's changed my life. Absolutely. I think we have places we have room to grow. And I think we should be eager to deal with the things that separate us. I think we should be eager to deal with the little things that are unspoken, that we feel and sense but never talk about. I think we should be eager to do those things. I think we should take very seriously the people that God has put around us and use our time wisely. You don't have that much time. You don't have that much time. And so let's deal with the things that need to be dealt with Let's grow in love into the maturity of Christ and be filled with the fullness of the Spirit. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And then you can, you know, holler at me in some hymns or something if you want when you see me in the street.